Wow, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. Um, God is going to speak. Um, somebody said to me this morning, just this morning, uh, I can tell you're speaking because you've kind of cleaned yourself and smartened yourself up. And I was wondering, what's the implication of that? To be honest, I feel it's somewhat of a triumph that I, I managed to pass this as smart. So, uh, so thank you very much for that. Well, here we are, as we said, right at the end of our 40 days prayer and fasting. I can't believe how quickly this has gone. Um, and I wonder what your highlights are, what your thoughts are, over, as you think back over these last 40 days, these last few weeks. For me, it's felt like a really good journey. Um, the way the, the themes have kind of built on each other, they've flowed together, they've linked together. There's this sense of building a really big picture in prayer, which is kind of what we set out to do, this rounded picture of prayer and all its elements, and a sense of building a, a, a really good momentum in prayer, both personally in my own life, but also together, corporately. And um, I've, got, I've got loads of highlights. So, for example, what the outside speakers who have come have brought us, I think, has been absolutely brilliant. We had Steph Liston and Brian Heasley at two of our midweek meetings just encouraging us in the power of prayer, the power of prayer to make a difference, to change things. And we had Glenn Scrivener who came on a Sunday morning, if you remember that, and he spoke about prayers of complaint, prayers of lament. It was just such a good, such a good word. And I just love it that we can hear from voices from the wider body of Christ, from the wider church who come in, and they've really blessed us and served us well. By the way, all the talks from midweeks and Sundays are on the website, so if you missed any of them, do take the time to have a listen. The midweek meetings themselves have been just incredible, such a highlight. The, the, each one of them has been different, but they've all been so powerful with the presence of God and the responsiveness of, of you, his people, the way you've turned out in number, um, hungry, sometimes literally hungry, uh, to seek God, to worship him, and to pray. And when God's people get together to pray, there is such power. Another highlight for me has been this book, actually. I've found this really, really helpful. I've really enjoyed it. And a number of you have said how much you've enjoyed working through this and the extra kind of breadth and depth that it's brought to what's been said on a Sunday morning in a, in a limited time. By the way, I wonder if you've worked out who wrote which week. Because the names of the six writers of the six weeks are listed in the front of here. What we should do is run a competition, email the office with who you think wrote which week, and the first one to get it right wins a free copy <laughs> of this. Hey, we've just done a series on generosity, okay? So this is, that's generosity right there. I know for many, though, this booklet has been really helpful. It's been a really good support, a really good aid in establishing patterns. Sometimes we need something to, to build around a structure, and this has been really good for people to, to establish patterns in your life. And, of course, the desire is that those patterns continue beyond the 40 days. And Neil started to talk about this last week. What next? Once the 40 days is over, what next? And he was encouraging us, one thing we could do is to work through the Psalms. Um, and as he said that, it reminds me of a... a, a fantastic book uh, by Tim Keller called My Rock, My Refuge, and it, it's printed in your news sheet. There's a recommended books section in your news sheet. My Rock, My Refuge is a daily devotional. It takes you through the Psalms over the course of a year, some brilliant insights, just teaches you how to meditate on the Psalms and, and all of Scripture, really. Really, really helpful, and so I'd recommend that. And of course, anything like that, I think, is going to be helpful for you to continue in those patterns of prayer. And of course, do keep praying your Jericho prayers. It was always intended to continue beyond the 40 days. Um, keep praying until you see breakthrough. Keep praying every day for as long as it takes. Personally, I found it to be a real faith-building time these last few weeks. I've, I've encountered God. I've heard from God. 
in ways that I, I haven't for a long time. So I found it really refreshing, really faith-building, and I find myself even more convinced than I was before of the power of prayer to make a difference, the power of prayer to change things. Now, the title for today is Growing in Prayer, a kind of sense of going forward from here, growing in prayer. And before I get onto how that works out in our personal lives, our individual lives, which is where I want to mainly focus today, I do want to briefly think about how that looks for us as a church how do we grow in prayer as a church? I've already mentioned the power of praying together. When we pray together, when we pray corporately, it's very, very powerful. And we want to be and we need to be a church that prays. Um, You know, groups in history, we've heard a lot of talk recently from various locations, various prophetic words about revival, which is really exciting. But I know that groups in the past, groups in history that have seen revival have been groups that are devoted to prayer. And so... How do we grow in that? How do we become a church? How can we be a church that is devoted to prayer? Devoted to praying for God's kingdom to come in this town. Devoted to praying for revival in this nation. How how can we do that? Several things, but let me mention first of all our encounter evenings, which we currently hold twice a term on a Sunday evening. And the reason for mentioning that is because actually the primary driver because we only started these encounter evenings less than a year ago, actually. The primary driver behind doing those encounter evenings, behind starting that off, is prayer. It's all about prayer and awareness. Actually, corporately, we weren't praying enough. It's not primarily about coming together and having a big bless-up. But the fact is, when we encounter God in that way, when we are blessed in that way, we pray. And when God's people pray together, it is very powerful and it's faith-inspiring And Ron spoke on that just a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to repeat everything that he said, but it is powerful. So I'd ask, please, make those evenings, those encounter evenings, a real priority. But please, could I also ask, not instead of a Sunday morning. I hope it's okay for me to say that. I hope it's okay for me to ask that. See, Sunday mornings are different. Sunday mornings have a, a, a very missional focus as well as being the gathering of God's people. And your presence on Sunday mornings is really, really important. Both for the gathered church and for those visitors who are coming in. You being here is really important. Don't ever think otherwise. And so please make the encounter evenings a priority when they come around. Make Sunday mornings a priority as well. Now I really hope that in the future we'll be able to increase the number of times that we gather corporately and formally for prayer. That's not necessarily in the form of an encounter evening. It might be, it might not be, I don't know. But I think we'd be mistaken if we think that that is the way, you know, gathered formal corporate prayer is the only way that we're going to grow in prayer as a church. It's very easy to think the church should put on more prayer meetings. And yes, certainly a a regular weekly organized prayer meeting might work for about 30 people, but it wouldn't be the whole church. I think it's also a mistake to think that the church equals the leadership in that the church should put on more prayer meetings. No, the church is you, and the church is me. The church is all of us. And so really for me, the question is, what is your part? How do you play your part? How do I play my part in us together being a praying church? So when you meet with people from the church, just informally, a group of two or three people, three or four people, do you pray together? 
Is that a natural thing for you to do? You catch up socially, you talk to one another about what's going on in your lives, but then is it a case of, right, guys, let's pray for one another. Actually, let's not just pray for one another, let's pray for the church. Let's pray for the power of God, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit to come. Actually, let's pray for our town, because we want to see that in our town. Is that a natural part of what you do together, or could it become a natural part of what you do together? How much do you pray in your small group? Are you in a small group? I mean, nobody's really in a small group at the moment. It's the summer holidays, but you know what I mean. Are you regularly part of a small group? And when you're in the small group, how much do you pray? What part can you play in us being a praying church? Could you pray for the Sunday morning meetings? These are really important times. Could you pray? Could you come early to pray? Up in Hazelmere, we have a 10 o'clock prayer meeting Uh, half an hour before the meeting starts, uh, and it's an open prayer meeting, so you've got the meeting leader and the worship team, but then anybody else who wants to come to pray for that morning. It's a small gathering, Uh, and logically, uh, logistically, it's much more feasible to do that up there with one meeting than it is here with two meetings and one of the meetings starting a lot earlier, by the way. But could you come here early to pray? King's kids open their doors 15 minutes before the meeting starts. Could you come here? Commit to pray for the Sunday morning meeting, for the presence of God. I'm just throwing things out here, really, to challenge all of us on what is our part in being a praying church. What is your part in us being a praying church? That's really why I want to spend most of my time this morning on what growing in prayer looks like in our own lives. Because actually, I think it's out of that that the corporate side of things, both the formal and the informal, will, will grow and will flow as we get the perspective in prayer right in our own lives, as we grow in prayer in our own lives, actually then we will also grow together. It will become more natural for us to pray together informally as well as formally. So how do we grow in prayer in our lives? And maybe it's the wrong question. Maybe it should be, how do we grow in seeking God? How do we grow in knowing God, because that's really what prayer is ultimately all about. That's what prayer is. The danger is that we focus too much on prayer as a thing, as an abstract thing, and it's just another thing that we have to fit into an already very busy life. And to be honest, it doesn't always feel all that productive. Like I said, going right back to what I said in week one of this series, a big reason for not praying is when we don't really think it makes a difference. We don't really believe that prayer is effective or that it makes a difference. And hopefully over these last six weeks, actually where that mindset has been there, that's shifted. And we've all become more convinced actually that prayer really is powerful. Prayer does make a difference. But when we focus on prayer as a thing, we risk missing the point. We we risk missing the point of what prayer is all about. I think it was Rich Horn when he was speaking on the Lord's Prayer. He said, when we focus on prayer, rather than focusing on God through prayer, It's a little bit like focusing on the windscreen in your car rather than looking through the windscreen to focus on the road. See, seeking God is the point of prayer. Seeking God, knowing God, finding God, focusing on God, being in relationship with God, that is the point of prayer. Prayer is the means to that end. It's not an end in itself. Having a good prayer time is not the end in itself. And so prayer has to be taken out of the abstract in our lives. It has to be taken out of that thinking of it's a thing that we've got to fit in and it's got to be interconnected with all of your life and not treated in isolation. And if that's the case, if if prayer is something which actually just runs naturally through all of our lives, then it's like many other things in our lives. It will be going through a process of maturing and growing with some ups and downs and sometimes fast and exciting and sometimes slow and mundane. Now that's not to say, of course, that we don't also need a focused time of prayer in our day. Because if Jesus needed that, 
well, then we certainly need that too. But the point I'm trying to make here is that you can't treat prayer as an abstract thing in isolation from the rest of your life. It's meant to be interconnected and intertwined with your whole life because God is meant to be interconnected and intertwined with all of your life. There's the verse we've heard or read many times over these 40 days. Pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So prayer is a multifaceted thing that runs through your whole life, which means that there's not one magic bullet, there's not one kind of killer method that is suddenly going to turn you into a prayer guru. Right? I'm sorry about that, um, but I've got to give you something today. So, uh, so I'm going to look at one thing. We're going to look at one thing, one principle that I think will help us in our prayer lives, in our personal prayer lives. By the way, a lot of what I say today has been inspired through reading this book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Again, that's written down in the, in the, uh, in the new sheet as a recommended book. I would thoroughly recommend this, A Praying Life, Paul Miller. Get hold of a copy of this. I've been reading this recently. found it so helpful. I'm going to read it again. Uh, take my time over it more slowly. Get hold of one of these. Read through it slowly. I've just found it very helpful, very inspiring in how I think about prayer in my own life. Now, I'm going to read three short sections from three different Gospels that actually aren't directly related to prayer but I think teach us an important principle that we can certainly apply to prayer and to our prayer lives. So the first one is in Mark chapter 10 uh, and verse 13, where it says this, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Then in Matthew chapter 18, and the disciples have been talking about who the greatest is in the kingdom of heaven. They've been arguing about it. And then it says this, Jesus called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' clear message to his disciples, to his followers here, become like little children. And then the final one is from when Jesus has sent out the 72, sent out 72 disciples on their first missionary journey, and they come back and they're so full of faith, they're so excited, they're so full of joy, and they're saying, Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. And they're just absolutely full of it. And then Jesus responds with a prayer in Luke 10, 21. It says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. He's been encouraging his disciples to become like little children. Now he's comparing them to little children and he's absolutely delighted that they have become like that. Jesus wants us, his followers, his disciples, to come to him like little children, just as we are No pretense, come like children. And I think there's several ways we can apply that to prayer. I'm not saying we should pray literally like a child. Jesus, thank you for my toys, kind of thing. But there's several ways we can apply this to our prayer lives. So the first is this. I don't know if you noticed, but little children, they just tend to say what they really mean. They just say what is on their mind. I have a vague memory of one of our children, I can't remember which one, one of our children saying to someone, have you got chicken pox? And the response was, no. Well, then why have you got spots all over your face? And you're like, oh, 
I'm so sorry, but children do this sort of thing, don't they? They say something and you think, oh my goodness, you can't say that, I'm really sorry. Then, But of course, there's no malice in there whatsoever. There's no nastiness intended at all. They're just, it's just a running commentary on life. It's just say what you see and there's a whole curiosity going on in their minds about things. There's no malice at all. It's as we grow up that we become more aware of social etiquette. Well, some of us do anyway. We become more aware of what not to say. We become more aware of how to say things in the right way, with the right intonation, the right language, the right nuance, so as not to cause offence. And, of course, there are good reasons for that sometimes because it's generally not very kind to go around pointing out everybody's physical flaws. But the problem with it is that we can easily take that into our prayer life in the way we speak to God, with kind of veiled language, saying things in the right way, looking for the right words, certain things we're not saying to God, trying not to offend, as if prayer is some kind of social performance. Prayer is not a performance. Prayer isn't an attempt to impress God whatsoever. You just have to read through the Psalms to to see that. You see no pretense in any of these Psalms whatsoever, and you see no pretense with little children. We're to come like little children. Little children will tell you what is going on at the time it's happening. They'll tell you what they're feeling when they're feeling it, whether that's happy or sad or angry or frustrated. You will know about it, and God wants us to approach him in the same way. You know, when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, and he he knows what's coming. He He knows what's going to happen. And he prays, and part of what he prays is, not my will, but yours be done. And you think, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? That's an amazing prayer. But it's not all he says, is it? Because actually Jesus starts off by saying, effectively saying, please, please, Father, take take this off me. Please, if there's another way, if it's at all possible, find a way out. And he's sweating drops of blood. He's in utter anguish, but he's being real with his father. He's expressing his anguish to his father. In our prayer life, we can very easily jump straight to the, not my will be done, but yours, because that sounds very good and it sounds very holy, without first expressing our hearts, without first being real and being honest with God. I find myself doing this sometimes. So I'm somebody, I quite like order and clarity and process and structure. I quite like that kind of thing. But I live in a house with three children who fill every space with themselves and with their stuff. Every space. And I work in the church, and that's sometimes messy. Uh, it doesn't always follow a nice flow chart. And I sometimes find myself in situations where I don't know what to do. And so life can sometimes feel a bit stressful, can feel a bit overwhelming. And I can sometimes find myself praying in a way that's not really very real. Oh, Lord, thank you. I love you. Thank you for who you are. You're so good. And of course, that's all true. And it's good. Thanksgiving and adoration in prayer are good and right. But not if it's mechanical, because that's what you think you should pray. Because that's the model of prayer that you tend to use. So at times, I've got to stop myself in my tracks and say, you know, actually, Lord, I feel completely overwhelmed right now. I feel stuck. I feel paralyzed. I, I just don't know what I'm doing. I'm completely out of my depth. And to be honest, I'm panicking a bit right now. I don't know why you've put me in this position, actually. I don't think I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. You've got to be real with him. So many of the Psalms do not start with adoration and thanksgiving. They start with gritty, honesty, reality, and the urgency of a situation. Thanksgiving and praise will then often follow later on, having first been honest with God. The psalmist having first expressed his heart to God. They don't follow a model of prayer. How about you?
How about you? How do you pray? How do you talk to God? Do you, do you seek to say just the right things and the right prayers, nice, polite prayers? Are you more concerned about getting it right, doing it right, than saying it as it is from your perspective? Second thing about little children is they don't worry about getting it right. It's just not a concern. They don't worry about it. So, you know, if you think of a child trying to walk, a, a toddler trying to walk, they kind of just get up and have a go and then fall down. And then they get up again and they have a go and they fall down. They don't think, well, I'm not going to start walking until I've completely mastered it perfectly. No, no, they just kind of bumble around and they, and they try and then they try again and they keep going. They don't worry about getting it right. So often we try to be spiritual, we try to pray the right prayers, or we set ourselves impossible goals out of desire to do it right. So, you, you know, you can say, well, I read about somebody, I read this about this guy who prays for six hours a day, gets up at three in the morning, well, I'm going to do that as well. <laughs> you won't. Or I, I, need, I need to pray through the Lord's Prayer every day, uh, then I need 30 minutes of silent contemplation, then I need to read my daily Bible reading and then spend time meditating on that, then I need to spend some time, 15 minutes in thanksgiving and praise. No, but actually that should come first, thanksgiving and praise, that needs to come first because that's the right order of things. Oh, and then I've got to start working through my prayer list. Of course, you know what happens, you, you end up doing none, none of it because you just feel overwhelmed because you're focusing on the activity of prayer, the windscreen rather than the road. Now, as I said earlier, that's not to say that having a focused, private time of prayer isn't important. It is. Jesus needed it. We need it. Jesus told us to do it. Go into your room, close the door. Go into your room and close the door. And so as followers of Jesus, we need those focused, private times of prayer. But like little children, take baby steps. Take baby steps. Start slowly. Pray as you can, not as you can't. Don't suddenly think, I'm now going to pray like Martin Luther. Because you won't. Start with baby steps. Pray as you can, not as you can't. Think of one thing. One thing, only one thing, that's going to help you seek God. It's going to help you know God in a time of private, focused prayer. Whether that is getting hold of a book like that and working through the Psalms, or it is reading through the Lord's Prayer. Whatever it might be, think of one thing and then do it until it's part of your life. Until it becomes an established pattern, an established part of your life that you couldn't actually do without. And then build from there. Then you can add. Then you can build. And probably what you'll find is that that starts to happen naturally as you discover the joy of being with God in that way for just those five to ten minutes that you may have started with that you start to desire more. And it comes out of a place of desire rather than a sense of duty or the need to be doing it right. So little children say what they mean. They don't worry about getting it right. And little children ask. They ask all the time. All the time. They ask for small things. They ask for big things. They ask for completely selfish things. And they ask for unselfish things. The thought doesn't occur to them though. I can't ask mum and dad for that. I can't ask for that. Because in their eyes, mum and dad can do anything. And they know everything. It doesn't take long for that particular illusion to to disappear, but do you ever find yourself thinking, oh, I can't ask God for that. No, I can't ask God for that. I can't ask for anything for myself because that's selfish. It's, it shows a lack of gratitude for, for what I already have. I think sometimes we tie ourselves in knots with this, with what we're allowed to ask in prayer, what we, what we can ask, what it's not right to ask, all those kind of things. Look at little children. They don't have this problem. It was interesting because uh, one of the early church fathers, Augustine, he wrote, ask nothing of God 
save God himself. Ask nothing of God except for God himself. And of course, that's partly right. That the best gift that we can have from God is God himself. That's true, absolutely true. But can you imagine if I said to Suzanne, my wife, I love you and I love you unconditionally, but don't ask me for anything because you know what? I am the gift. (laughs) Can you imagine the response, or if Suzanne indeed said that to me. Now, there is a part of truth in that, because if I take Suzanne, yes, she is a gift to me. Just her, who she is, the person, she is a gift to me. But of course, you can't separate that out from responding lovingly and, and, and generously to requests. Yes, God is the best gift we could have. Just God himself, to know him is the ultimate point of prayer. But he also tells us to make requests. He tells us to ask to ask anything, because actually it shows that same trust of a little child. My dad, he can do anything. My dad can do anything. And of course, sometimes we have very serious, very urgent requests to make of God, and we should make them. But to pick a a more trivial example, you know, I sometimes think, you know what, Lord, I'd love a bigger house. I'd love four bedrooms so that the girls could have their own room, a couple of... of, uh, rooms downstairs so one can be more for the kids one can be more for us and maybe a private space a toilet an extra toilet would be so helpful oh believe me it'd be so helpful um but then I think no I know I can't I can't pray that that's selfish it shows a lack of gratitude for what I have because I have so much more than the vast majority of people in this world but actually I can say father I actually am really grateful for what I have I realize that we are rich I realize that we are blessed Because I really am grateful, by the way. This isn't pretense. (laughs) I really am grateful. And so I can say, Father, I am so grateful for what we have. Thank you for how you've blessed us. But do you know what? I would love a bit more space. Now, here's the thing. My life, my faith, my relationship with God does not stand or fall on whether he answers that request in the way I want. But I can ask because he's my father. And I'm his child. And you know what? My dad can do anything. So I can ask and come like a child and just ask and then leave it to him. Little children, they just come as they are. They're spontaneous in in all sorts of ways. You know, they'll be walking along with you down the street and they suddenly just reach out to hold your hand. Or you'll be sitting on the sofa and they'll just launch themselves at you with no warning because in that moment they want a hug. And those are some of the greatest joys that you have as a parent. But why would we think God our Father is any different? that he would want us to wait for a set time to enjoy a hug with him, to say, no, no, that can only happen between 7 and 7.30 because that's when you have your quiet time. No, be like little children, spontaneous. Little children instinctively hold on to you when they're scared, in the moment. So I remember watching Teletubbies with Anna when she was really little. I, I praise God every day that I don't have to do that anymore. But watching Teletubbies with Anna when she was very little and there was this bit where a lion and a bear would come on. Some of you might know this. It wasn't even a real lion and bear. It was this kind of rubbish-looking wooden puppet. It was, I, I just, it, was, it was bizarre. But anyway, she didn't really like this very much. And so I would find that she had edged her way over to me and she was there holding onto my leg because she wasn't sure. She was scared. And she, she just wanted to be close to her dad in that moment. Little children sit on your lap and they sob when they're upset or when they've hurt themselves usually with lots of snot and blood mixed in, getting all over you. But what they don't do, they don't clean themselves up 
and then come back to talk to you later and say, right, now, Father, I'd like to discuss that incident earlier when I was upset, and I'd just like to process it in hindsight. No, they come in the moment, because right now I feel upset and I need comfort. Right now I need a hug. And so they come streaming with tears, streaming with snot, and the parent doesn't mind the snot, get, well, that you put up with the snot getting on you because actually you're comforting your child and that's more important. Now, if a human parent can put up with their child's snot, how much more can God put up with all of your snot? That's a line I never thought I'd say. (laughs) How much more can God put up with that and in fact would welcome you in those moments? Come to him like a child. Come in the moment like a little child. Final thing, little children are not cynical. They're not cynical at all. Cynicism is probably the biggest barrier to growing in prayer. A cynical spirit is the opposite of a childlike spirit. And it comes from all sorts of things. It comes from weariness. It comes from feelings of defeat, feelings of being let down, maybe let down by God, just being ground down by the world or just being bombarded with the kind of the anti-God views of, of the world. Cynicism is what leads us to doubt the power of prayer. It's what leads us to look at answered prayer and think, well, that would have happened anyway. Didn't matter whether I prayed or not. Cynicism questions the goodness of God on your behalf. It questions the power of God, and we are surrounded by it. We live in an age of cynicism. We're bombarded by it every day of our lives in the world that we live in. When we allow cynicism to creep in, it changes our perspective on everything. We lose sight of what is right, we lose sight of what is good, and we, we start to think everyone has ulterior motives, no one has pure motives. We despise the success of others, we get jealous, we think behind every silver lining there's a cloud, we become critical, we become unloving, we don't trust. Actually, often we use cynicism to protect ourselves from disappointment. You know, there's no point in asking that because it's not going to happen anyway, so I'm not going to ask. And we're trying to protect ourselves. But what it actually ends up doing is paralyzing us and numbing us to the joy of life, to, to all the good things that life has, all the good things that God has for us. When we become cynical, we lack purity of heart. Listen to what Paul Miller says about this, how he describes it. He says, it goes something like this. My heart gets out of tune with God, but life goes on. And so I continue to perform and say Christian things, but they're just words. I talk about Jesus without the presence of Jesus. There's a disconnect between what I present and who I am. My words sound phony, and so others' words sound phony too. In short, my empty religious performance leads me to think that everyone is phony. The very thing I am doing, I accuse others of doing. Adding judgment to hypocrisy breeds cynicism. I wonder if you can identify with that. I know I can how that cynicism can creep into my life and colour how I view everything. I know that can happen to me. Beware a cynical spirit. Beware cynicism. That's why cultivating a childlike spirit is so important because little children are not cynical. They have that kind of purity of heart. They see things through eyes of awe and wonder all the time. They, they observe, they discover, they, they get so excited about the most trivial little thing. But for them, in that moment, this is the most exciting thing in the world. They're always talking, they're always questioning, they're always asking, and they trust. They do everything with an attitude of trust. See, this must have been what life was like for Adam in the beginning before sin came in. Sin, which was, by the way, rooted in cynicism. 
as the serpent questions the purity and the honesty of God's motives. He says, you know, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? He doesn't want to protect you. He's only interested in protecting himself. He doesn't want any rivals. He says one thing, but actually he works this whole other agenda. It's cynicism. It's there at the root of, of that sin. But just try and imagine what life was like for Adam. With God there, always by his side. Kind of this feeling of walking with God. It says in Genesis about God came walking in the garden. I've often wondered, what, what is that, what's that like? But before sin came in, walking with God, constant communion with God, discovering new things all the time with a sense of wonder, talking to God about it. You can imagine Adam saying, whoa, look at that. Never seen one of those before. What is that? It looks a bit strange. I'm going to call it a giraffe. Is that okay? Can I, is that okay? Can I call it a giraffe? And God just says, yes, son, of course it's okay. You, you call it what you want. I'm just enjoying watching you getting so excited about this. And Adam says, oh, look at this. Something else over here. You've got to come and have a look at this. You've got to come and have a look. I know, son, it's all good. It's all good. There's so much for you to discover. But you know what? I'm really going to blow your mind now. I'm going to put you to sleep for a little bit. And I'm going to make something else. You're going to like this. Now wake up and watch. Look at, look at that. It's like, wow. That is amazing. That is beautiful. What is that? This, that's the kind of relationship I want with God. That sense of wonder and joy and delight and just being with him, always talking, always asking, always able to involve him in everything in my life, every detail, able to invite his wisdom. So when I'm about to respond to the children in a stressful situation or they've just been really irritating me or I'm facing a situation, I don't know what to do just to be able to say, help me, Lord. Help me know how to respond here. Help me to look after them. To be able to invite his wisdom, always just invite him into my life, always wondering, always discovering, always with him, intimately with him, like a little child and his father. That's the kind of relationship I want with God. But that is why the gospel is so good. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so good because what was marred and what was ruined, what was destroyed, what was lost has been reversed and is being reversed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 5.17, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, how much more will they reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Jesus came to restore what was lost. He came to restore that relationship with our Heavenly Father. He came to make it possible for us to approach God like little children, to enjoy God as Adam did, to restore that sense of delight and wonder in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Because in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to cynicism. The barrier between us and God has been completely removed. So the gospel is very, very good news, which means that we can look at our cynicism and see how ridiculous it is. We can catch ourselves in it and think, that is ridiculous, stop it. And just praise your Father in heaven. We can, it's great news that means that prayer is a moment of incarnation all through our lives. God with us in every detail of my life. See, we tend to focus on the inadequacy of our prayers and just give up too easily thinking there's something wrong with us. But God focuses on the adequacy of his Son He looks at the adequacy of his son, Jesus, and he delights in your feeble efforts. He delights in our shaky, helpless, meandering, distracted prayers. We don't seek to grow in prayer. We don't seek to grow in knowing God because it's our duty. That gets thin very, very quickly. That wears thin extremely quickly. No, we seek to grow in prayer 
because it's our delight and it's our Father's delight. And so let's come to him like little children. Let's come to him full of trust, full of wonder, no pretense, come as you are. Utterly dependent on him every minute of the day in every detail of life. I believe that is how we will grow in prayer in our lives and how we will grow in prayer together. And just to finish, as it says in Luke chapter 18, and these are the words that finished off our 40 days in the booklet, always pray, always pray and never give up.